0: Hey, this is Jiv. First, thanks for downloading the podcast, or streaming the podcast, or just generally listening to the podcast. The music you're hearing now is The Overture for L. It's composed by Lion Smith. Today we're focusing in on Piazza by New Roy, which is playing at Theatre Passemurai just until March 27th. Piazza is a 50th anniversary celebration play. So what that means is it's one of several plays that we're programming from the past work of Theatre past Mirai in the years leading up to the 50th anniversary. Piazza was originally programmed in 2008. Today we want to share with you a live recording from Egg Rolls with Andy. Now, if you remember from last time, Egg Rolls is a chance for Artistic Director Andy McKim to chat with a local expert on some of the larger social themes related to the play at hand without specifically just talking about the play. In the case of Piazza, Andy sat down with Rahul Bardwaj to talk about caste, class and social mobility. So, here's Andy McKim in conversation with Rahul Bardwaj from the Toronto Community Foundation.
1: Uh, Welcome folks. Uh, my name is Andy McKim, I'm the Artistic Director here at Theatre and uh, tonight's Egg Rolls, uh, we're going mm-hmm. to welcome uh, a remarkable man in my view, um, Rahul Bardwaj, who is the CEO of the Toronto Foundation. Uh, formerly a corporate lawyer with a leading Canadian law firm, he was also Vice President of the Toronto 2008 Olympic bid, which must have been interesting for you. Uh, He is the past Chair of Community Foundations of Canada as well as the Toronto Downtown uh, Jazz Festival. And his past board commitments include George Brown College, Stratford Festival of Canada and United Way Toronto. Uh, A diversity of interests is expressed in those commitments. Uh, In his role as the President and CEO of the Toronto Foundation, Rahul has been working to engage philanthropy to improve the quality of life in Toronto. And a single sentence really doesn't summarize the the work of the Toronto Foundation, but maybe we'll get to that and you Mm -hmm. can tell us more about it. But since you folks are coming this evening to see Piazza, which is a play set in Calcutta and uh, in India, uh, and you happen to be South Asian, I thought we would start by talking about South Asia and um, uh, maybe the caste system, because it figures very largely in our play. So first of all, for those who might not be familiar with the caste system, what its history is and where, where we might be today as far as the caste system in India.
2: So, uh, how about a couple of disclaimers first. Boy, do I ever feel like I'm dressed like a lawyer tonight, right? <laughs> it's a uh, trust man from the philanthropic world. I got to tell you, Andy, thank you for bringing me here tonight. It's great to come back. You know, I think I came here to see uh, Maggie and Pierre. Stop yeah, it. Like way, way, no. way, way, way back. So, oh. I don't come here back often enough. And now I'm going to embarrass my, my kids are here, Davin and his sister Chaya. Yeah. So when Andy came to see me to tell me about the play, I got really excited about it. I said, of course I'll be there because I've got to bring my own Chaya along. And as you're going to find out, and as you probably know, that's one of the, uh, well, one of the central characters. The central character. So when Andy came to talk to me, he sort of said, let's talk about uh, the theme of the play. And Mm -hmm. let's connect it with this big concept called cast. And let's kind of bring that theme into Toronto. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we do at our foundation, you might know, is this report called Toronto's Vital Signs. And it's a diagnostic of the city what are we doing well and what we're not doing so well. And, and it's interesting how that theme of caste, you know, it's not quite in there, but we'll build on it a couple minutes on maybe yeah, how yeah. caste is kind of finding its roots in, in Toronto, some would argue, which is kind of interesting. But So I'm not an academic, but let me tell you what I know about caste. Mm-hmm. So growing up in a South Asian family, I was born in London, England, raised in London, Ontario. A little bit that's, of a head, that's a little bit of a head twister. But I got a plane yeah. flight out of it. So when you're a little boy and you actually get to fly here, that's pretty cool. But my parents came from India in 1958 from Punjab to London, Ontario, uh, to London, England, and London, Ontario. That great bastion of multiculturalism that it was not <laughs> in the late 1960s. Yeah. But I grew up hearing about caste quite a bit. And you know, when you hear it in the context that I heard about it, it was in a somewhat positive but somewhat uncomfortable mm. sort of context. And for those who aren't comfortable with the notion, it's it's more than class, it's really what you're born into. It's your birthright. And in some respects, it's a birthright that comes with the right part plus all the duties part. But on the other hand, if you go into the depth of this, you know, my recollection, it goes back to about 2000 BC, as we would call it. Mm. and. Interestingly enough, the word caste is not a South Asian or an Indian word. It's actually a Portuguese word. So that's what the Portuguese would call something that we would call Varna in Hinduism, so it goes way back to that. And the notion was um, when God was creating the universe and did kind of the bounds across the universe in the sort, uh, when he created this world, there was the mouth, the arms, the thighs, and the feet of sort of the civil body. And those were the castes. So the Brahmins, the Katri, uh, the Vesha, and the Shudra. And now there are thousands of castes, but those were sort of the four of them. Mm -hmm. And if you hear, I'm going to say this with a smile on my face, apologists for the caste system, they'll tell you that those four integral pieces, although that they are very um, unequal in many ways, are all necessary elements of the body politic and civil society. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my take on it. The, the other side, and I know we'll get into the cultural side of this thing, is my father, who's 88 now, if you told him what your last name was, if you're Indian and you're playing Indian geography on who's who, he could tell you your caste, he can tell you likely what your parents' occupations are, and he could mm-hmm. probably throw a dart on a map and tell you where you came from. So that's how caste and last name were so mm-hmm. closely integrated. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: this is odd, but while you were talking, I was thinking of about Brave New World, which is a a play that we've been helping Litmus Theatre develop an adaptation of, and of course, Brave New World is premised on a similar kind of concept, right? There's the alpha, the beta, the gamma the epsilon, and and they're born that way, but not only that, they're actually genetically programmed to be that way. Is there some understanding uh, that comes along with the caste system? That people are born, like you did say that, that you're, you're naturally born into a caste, but are, do people have the perception that that's appropriate in a kind of, I don't know, biological way?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I guess you have to say, you know, when would that conversation have taken place? Because yeah. the conversation today around caste. And what it was 2,000 years ago, or even 200 years ago, was very, very different. But, you know, you're talking about Huxley, and I'll tell you, Plato also, you know, if you look at the Platonic Dialogues, they've got gold, silver, and bronze as well. And his whole concept around justice was, well, you know, bronze people do bronze things. And it's very unjust to make a bronze person try to be a gold person, and vice versa, because that's just not just. And I think there's a concept of that embedded in the caste system as well, and, you know, I wasn't there and I'm not an academic, but you could see how in certain societies as a part of division of labor and all the other things and the opportunities that go along with it, these things evolved. Uh, When the British were there, they exploited the system quite a bit to their advantage as well. And many of you might know that now in India, I think since about the late 50s, the notion of caste has actually been abolished. But this is how you abolish something in India. You tell everybody that you uh, you can't talk about it uh, you tell them that you can't actually deny opportunities based on it, but you actually create a whole legislative system that has schedules of caste to get affirmative action around it, too. So on the one hand, you can't have it. On the other hand, we're going to legislate it. So that's how you do things in India. Okay. Um, and
1: where does your family sit? Right. <laughs> so Is that fair?
2: Uh, sure. Yeah. That's a fair question. So when you think about it in terms of a hierarchy, at least in India, you think about the Brahmins, which were typically sort of the priests and the intellectuals. You'd have the what they call the Khatri, and those were um, often sort of the protectors. So you would think of sort of the warrior caste. Then you have the Vaishas, which is really the mercantile caste. And then you have the shudras, which were sort of the laborer caste. And then you have a whole bunch of other ones, but that's sort of the four big ones. So we are Hindu Brahmins from Punjab. Mm-hmm. So uh, being raised and being told that, it was always told in a very flattering light, in a very positive light, mm-hmm. but I didn't adopt a whole lot of it, so you know, growing up in Canada and the West, it wasn't something that was deeply ingrained in me, personally. Mm-hmm. But you always know, knew that there were differences, and those differences often went with last names and with regions, mm-hmm. so you were aware that there was something a little different about it.
1: Yeah, and I may be getting ahead of my questions by asking you this, but as a Brahmin, and being aware of a caste system, and having the job that you have right now, does it ever pop its head up and, and have you do a double take about your own situation? Only the when they call all... me
2: a political pundit. Oh, why is that? <laughs> because Brahmins are pundits. I see. So that's the, the sort of the intellectual the priest, intellectual piece. So Every once in a gotcha. while you hear and I have a chuckle and I say, I bet you Please they see. don't know I'm Brahmin when they say that. Uh, Sorry, is, the, is that the etymology of pundit? Pundit? Sure, it's a part of it. Uh-huh. So, so the etymology of the word is, it's a, it's a, I don't know if it's a Sanskrit word, but it's certainly used in, uh, it's got South Asian roots and, mm-hmm. and it's about people who know things and sort mm-hmm. of the intellectual group. So okay. when they call people political pundits, it's kind of political know-alls. Right. So it just happens to be coincidentally Brahmins. So. Yeah. That's a little inside joke that keeps me smiling. <laughs> uh, but, you know, not so much in the context of caste, but more so in the context of uh, mobility, social mobility in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I bring that notion of caste into Toronto, each diverse community, I think, would have something that's loosely analogous to caste. Some communities, it's going to be a lot stronger than it would be in other communities, and it's going to be a lot more determinative of your birthright and your future. So in the very strictest terms in India, you know, in the olden days, if you were born into a caste, you are born into a caste. You couldn't move out of that caste. You were in that caste. And that would often define the parameters of where you could live geographically, what you could read and write, what you could eat, mm-hmm. uh, what your opportunities in life were. Now, clearly, that's evolved, but it's still not mm-hmm. great. But if I put it in the terms of opportunity, well, you can look around in Toronto as well and recognize there are people that are born into certain geographies, certain communities, that are born into cycles that they're not going to be easily able to move out of. Mm -hmm. But a big difference, though, is in a class system, there's this notion that you can, in fact, there is social mobility. It may not be great, Mm -hmm. but you can actually move through classes. You can move from the middle class and Mm -hmm. frankly lose your job and move down, or you can advance your education and move into a different class. Mm -hmm. But once you're in a caste, you're in that caste.
1: But this is something I would like to address in a minute, is this idea that there's great mobility in our society and no mobility in a caste system. Um, I I wanted to let you know that uh, I was really interested in programming Piazza uh, in 2008, during my very first season here at Theatre Pasverine, because I wanted to make a statement uh, about what my conception of a Toronto story is. And uh, this was one of many stories that I selected in a season that I called Toronto Stories. And some people might wonder, well, set in Calcutta, how could that be a Toronto story? And two elements of my logic go like this. One is, um, Anusri lives in Toronto, therefore she's my neighbour, therefore uh, it's a Toronto story because she lives here and this is the story she's telling. And as a citizen, that represents our city. Additionally, I feel that the experiences that we have as a municipal culture are an amalgam of everyone's experience. Now those experiences are not limited by geography. In in our case, Toronto is so diverse that it's actually amplified by looking at the geography that it mm-hmm. encompasses in fact the stories of the people in our city and so many of them are people who have come newly from another geography. So on that basis I thought it was really important for us as a a municipal society to conceive of Toronto stories embracing, really, the entire world and its stories. So that was the reason why I was particularly keen on on this story amongst others. And I wanted to tell you another thing about this story that's important, and it's kind of the bridge between the first part of our conversation and the second part, which has more to do with the socio-political economic context that we live in here in Toronto, and that you can illuminate for us. And that's a personal story about Anusri. Anusri um, similarly uh, lived in, similar to you, uh, although you didn't live in India, but she lived in India when she was a kid and uh, she was uh, an upper caste family. And when she came here, uh, they didn't have very many goods or money at all. And the little goods they had and money were robbed from them. And she bore witness to her dad being treated appallingly uh, because people uh, threw racist epithets at him. So she suddenly found herself going from the most privileged position to exactly the opposite. And in a sense, uh, the play is her response because it forced her to go back to India and look for the gentleman who worked in her home who was in the lower cast. and she finally found him and she said i i've looked for you because i moved to canada i've had this epiphany i wanted to apologize and he uh swore at her and said i'm sorry i have no interest in making you feel better and that was the best gift she could have got because it left her to work out this whole issue about privilege and and where she, what her place was in it and how much insight she had in it in, about it. And so the play that you're going to see tonight uh, in some ways has issued from that kind of perspective that she's able to give us because she's seen both sides of privilege. So that brings us to to, to Toronto and to this evening with you. and. Um, Maybe we could just talk about the Toronto Foundation first Mm -hmm. and what your values and vision are at the foundation and um, why I think that places you in a perfect position to tell us about the economic situation, the class situation, the the social justice situation that that you see and deal with and try and uh, improve on a daily basis with the Toronto
2: Foundation. Sure. So I'll give you a quick snapshot. So the Toronto Foundation, We say we're the foundation for people who love Toronto and want to make it great. We're one of 191 community foundations from across the country and we do city building initiatives so we provide grants to organizations in the city that are improving Toronto's vital signs and we all know when we go to our doctor what our vital signs are but we do a report on the city called Toronto's Vital Signs and that will give us a sense of a diagnostic of what we're doing well in the city, what we're not doing so well at and then we convene people around it to come up with ideas and then we bring the public, private sector and philanthropy together to make things better through, uh, through philanthropy. So we do a lot of city building, but a- along the way, you learn a lot about what's going on in the city as well. And, and that actually can be very interesting because the report itself actually brings the different solitudes of the city together. I mean, most people know the city by function of where they live and work and what they see in between. This report, if you go online, it's 300 pages. If you get the star version, it's all on one page, and it's kind of very digestible. But uh, it really gets people onto the same page, and it's become a really interesting platform to to break some myths, to remind people that, you know, for the sixth year in a row, Toronto's the fourth most livable city on the planet. That's a great thing. Problem is, not enough people in the city are really experiencing (laughs) that fourth most livable experience in the city. So, you know, this is that great city that's got a sweet and sour, but, you know, to your, to your earlier point, you know, my big takeaway on this and Anusri's observations based on, on what she saw in India was, you know, we don't have it perfect here, but boy, you know, on the continuum, we're a heck of a lot more equal here than they are in a lot of places around the world. And I've been known to give this speech called The World Needs Toronto to Succeed. And it's not arrogance that I'm saying that with the people outside of Toronto. hate it when I say that. That's kind of cute. But the point I'm trying to make, though, is that we've got some fantastic assets in this city. And if we're actually really smart about how we harness those, we can be a real beacon of leadership to Mm -hmm. other cities around the world that are struggling with things like diversity. Mm -hmm. So when Anoussa and her family came here originally, you know, the experience that her father and family had when they arrived here, it's going to be very different than when newcomers arrive here. I'm not gonna say better or worse, because newcomers are experiencing a lot of issues as well. But the nature of what they're doing is going to be less, I think less racially driven. Uh, There's way more in terms of support. Opportunity, absolutely. There's a real big issue of opportunity in the city. But when I came here, as I was saying, London, Ontario, that bastion of multiculturalism that it's not, we were amongst the first five Indian families there. So you really knew you stuck out so the nature of the discomfort, I think is very different than the nature of the discomfort now. So it's a, it's a really dynamic place to be and the foundations are a fantastic perch to see a lot of this happening.
1: But it is fair to say there's a completely different experience of the city depending on who you are and what you look like and maybe even what your name is.
2: Totally, so let me give yeah. you some numbers to put around this, this yeah. is fun stuff. So when folks from outside the city come to Toronto and I remind them, 51% of Torontonians were not born in Canada. We can kind of sit here and go, yeah, okay, we knew that. The rest of the world hears that, and they think we're insane. A third of Torontonians arrived here in roughly the last 30 years. By 2025, so that's another 10 years, 63% of Torontonians will be visible minorities. So the amount of change the city has gone through over the last generation is tremendous. But I always think it actually speaks wonders for Toronto in terms of values, in terms of uh, how we've evolved and grown together. But I'll also tell you that... Right now, we've got about 43% of Torontonians live in lower, very low-income neighborhoods. And if you do the math, that's over a million people, two-thirds of whom are visible minorities, which starts to take you into that whole side of the equation that there are a lot of people here who are simply not experiencing that fourth most livable city, and many of them are newcomers. Yeah,
1: and I think the challenge for us is to recognize that that sort of thing exists Mm -hmm. as a society, as a municipality, and, and try and extend our empathy into those worlds rather than just being aware of our fourth ranking. Yeah. Um, I'm, a couple of things that struck me when I took a look at the Vitals Report in light of us talking tonight. Um, despite the slight gain from 2006 to 2012, the median income for the bottom 99% of Canadians has risen 3.6% between 1982 and 2012 while the top 1% have enjoyed an almost 50% increase in theirs. That's sickening.
2: It's bizarre. If I give you a little historical context to this as well, when we look at things like that, the, the degree of inequality has been growing, and that's something to be really frustrated about. But everybody here has heard roughly of the 80-20 rule. That sort of ring a bell, you know, can I I get 80% of your revenue from 20% of your customers, that kind of notion. It was an Italian economist who came up with that. That's Pareto. And this goes back a couple hundred years where he was actually looking at Italy and figured out that 20% of the people owned 80% of the land. So this whole notion of the 80-20 and becoming even more exacerbated into the one in the 99. This has been a journey that we've been seeing in the Western world for the last couple hundred years. There's a very famous
1: English uh, theatre company that in the 70s named itself 7 7 percent of the population in Britain owned 84 percent of the wealth at that time. Hence the reason for that uh, name for their company. Income inequality in Toronto is growing at twice the national average.
2: Yep. Yeah. So now we've got 52% of Torontonians live in what's called the precariat. And if you extend that to the GTA, the order of magnitude is roughly the, po- uh, the population of the whole entire city of Kitchener. And the notion around the precariat is kind of interesting because I'm looking at the age profile in here roughly. Most of us went to high school, then kind of probably went to college and university, came out and got a job, and kind of moved on, and maybe it was a great job, maybe not, but chances are you probably had benefits, probably full-time. Somewhere along the way, there was a full-time job with benefits. Well, now we've got 52% of people that don't have that. So when you're talking about jobs today, they're without benefits. They are part-time. They are consulting gigs, and people now, this is the new economy, where they're sort of pulling those together. And it's really, really difficult for them to really get, you know, an often uh, standard of living, and they call it precarious employment now. Mm -hmm. And when you look at youth unemployment in Toronto, which is one of the big pieces that pops out out of Toronto's Vital Signs report, this year got up to 21%. So if I'm down on Bay Street telling them between 18 and 24 year olds have got 20% or 21% youth unemployment. They're going nuts. I mean, this is what, you know, in their mind, you know, Greece in the middle of, the, of mm-hmm. their troubles and, and Spain were having, that's European numbers. 21%, are you crazy? Well, 27% youth unemployment if you're a newcomer. So there's the racial component to it. But the real problem there, in my view, to be honest with you, is it's been over 15% for a decade. So this isn't just a little bit of a blip, this mm-hmm. is the new reality. And a lot of newcomers are trying to exist within that.
1: Yeah. Um. This was interesting to me that, that you would even know this. Uh, this is, also, I got this from the report as well. Almost 80% of respondents believe that many people are disadvantaged because of their background and have to work much harder than others of equal talent to overcome the obstacles they face. So it actually shows a very high level of recognition of the challenge that exists for a large body of our populace.
2: No, I think you're right. I think if, if there's one, Silver lining to this in Toronto is that people aren't afraid to talk about this and there is a recognition about you know, diversity is our strength. The more you talk about it, the more people get comfortable with the notion and diversity means a lot of things to a lot of different people. But every once in a while, there'll be a study that pops up that says, you know, when Jane Doe sends, you know, her uh, resume in for a job, but when Farah Mohammed sends her resume in for the job and it's the same person with the same resume, you know, Jane gets 10 interviews and Farah gets zero. So, you know, those things still pop up there to say that there are, you know, in some cases biases, and in others, just stereotypes that are going to take longer to break. But if you think about what makes Canada so neat, you know, so I said earlier, fourth most livable city on the planet six years in a row. The top, well, three out of the top five cities on that list for the last six years are Canadian cities, Vancouver, Toronto, and Calgary. So, you know, no kidding, we're doing something really neat in this country. So, we've got, you know, a real platform that we can build off of that Mm -hmm.
1: Excellent. Um, What role do you think, jumping now to a new subject, what role do you think art plays in the health of the city?
2: That's a great question. So, uh, art, art, at our foundation, our report is all about data, and you've heard a bunch of data here, but I tell a lot of stories about it too. And to give life to those things is really to storytell, And in my mind, very much art is storytelling. And I have found over the years that the more you can connect the head and the heart, the more chance that you're going to actually shift behavior and attitudes and good things will come out of it. Mm-hmm. And in my own impression, people gravitate towards that. And to me, art is really, you know, where storytelling is housed. And that's what moves people. The data can confuse people. It can interest people, but I've yet to see data actually move people. Yeah,
1: right. For my last question, I'm going to throw a,
2: <laughs> a curveball curve at
1: you. What role do you think love plays in the work that you do?
2: So, you know, you heard me say earlier, we're the foundation for people who love Toronto and want to make it great. If you go onto our website, you'll see one of our logos is actually a T-heart, so T-O, but the O is actually a heart. And we made a strategic vision-style decision a long time ago that we could actually be people over the head with the data. We can convince them all about what their money could do. But we made a strategic decision to say that if we can give Torontonians permission to love their city and actually use that word, that we can actually move the dial on our vital signs in this city. And i found that our ability to engage people on wanting to make their community better and their city better is uh, giving them permission to love it. And it's not a word you often hear out there without people just thinking it's really soft, Mm -hmm. but it's a very, very powerful force for social change.
1: I was thinking of it, even on a more interpersonal level, I have the sense that you have a great deal of love and empathy for individuals, not just for a municipality, but for those individuals who make up all of these statistics, and that somehow that drives you in your work. Am I oh yeah, misunderstanding?
2: You, know, you can tell that all the data we've got, trust me, our online uh, reports, 300 pages with all the hypertext links in there and stuff. So I see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there's a fair bit of ugly out there that you look at, too. And you can kind of get lost in that dark space. Uh, but then you go out and you meet people. And you meet people that don't know anything about the data. That's not relevant to their lives. And you can be really blown away by what some people are doing. And not just anywhere, but in this city. I mean, there's some remarkable people who are doing some very simple but remarkable things. And they just remind you. Uh, that that's a really powerful force. So yeah, yeah, you know, it's more than empathy. It's just, I think those are incredible moments of leadership mm-hmm. when you see them doing fantastic things. It could be despite the odds. It could be with incredible focus. It could be with just you know an intensity and passion that yeah. you really just sit back and you go, my God, what an yeah. incredible thing to be able to do.
1: I want to thank you so much, <laughs> and uh, I ask you folks to show your appreciation for Raoul Barjwal.
0: Thank
1: you. Thank, you. Thank you. The recording's over. I just wanted to say by way We of, were
2: recording this? Yes. <laughs> oh, jeez. I just wanted
0: to say. That was Andy McKim, artistic director, in conversation with Rahul Bardwaj of the Toronto Community Foundation at Egg Girls with Andy for Piazza. Piazza plays just until March 27th at Theatre Pass Marai. It's written by Anoush Roy, also performed by Anoush Roy, directed by Thomas Morgan Jones, production designed by David DeGro, stage managed by Joanna Barada. Egg Rolls with Andy is one of the many community-driven initiatives we have going on at Theatre Passamurai. You can check out our website, passmurai.ca, for information on all the activities we've got going on. You can follow us on Twitter at Beyond Walls TPM. And of course, like and share this podcast. The music you're listening to is The Overture for L, composed by Lion Smith. You can find Lion on SoundCloud at Lion 1. That's L Y O N 1. I'm Jib Parisram. Associate Artistic Producer for Theatre Passemurie in Toronto. Thanks for listening.